Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks so much for tuning in. Chris Stemp here. So happy to have you this week as we uncover the magical, mystical world of near-death experiences. Our guest this week is Dr. Bruce Grayson. And Dr. Grayson is a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the UVA School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was a co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. Dr. Grayson is also the author of the brand new book, After. A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life, Death, and Beyond. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. I think it's such a cool topic, one we've never covered, and one that most people, myself included, find fascinating. I'd love to know what you think. Shoot me an email at chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And if you enjoy what we do, I know you hear us every time say this, but support us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, and for as little as two bucks a month, you can not only support the show, but also get some great perks such as ad-free episodes, access to our guests, direct messaging for John and I, and much more. Again, that is 
patreon.com slash smart people podcast. And if you really want to help, be sure to tell a friend about the show. Here it is, our episode with Dr. Bruce Grayson as we talk about near-death experiences and his brand new book, After. A doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life, death, and beyond. Enjoy. I'm so excited to talk to you about this, especially after recently I watched a miniseries on Netflix about near-death experiences. I'm sure you're familiar with that one. Yes, yes. Let's start, though, with it's an interesting journey on how you got here. And I pulled off some basics in doing my research, but it sounds like you really, your career, your path really took a turn based off of a patient early on in your career. So that's, bring that's us right. back yes, to yeah. that time early in your career that set you off on this journey about becoming an expert in near-death experiences. Yeah. Well, I didn't start out that way, Chris, as, as you may have heard. I, I started out in a very scientific family. My father was a chemist and we grew up um, just with the physical world being the only world there was. We never talked about anything non-physical, anything spiritual or religious. It just never occurred to us as something other than the physical body. So I assume that when you die, that's the end. And that was fine with me. I didn't see the need for anything else. So I went through college and medical school with that materialistic mindset. I didn't think anything was missing from that. And then in the first few weeks of my psychiatric training, I was asked to evaluate a patient who had been brought to the emergency room after an overdose. And when I went to see her, she was um, unconscious. I could not arouse her. Uh, but her roommate who had brought her in was waiting to talk to me in another room uh, about 50 yards down the hall. So I went to talk to the roommate and got information about the patient, about what had been going on in her life, what she might have taken for the overdose. We talked for about 15 or 20 minutes. And they went back to see the patient and she was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And I arranged to see her the following morning after she woke. When I went to see her the next day, she was very drowsy. Again, hard to arouse, but I could arouse her now. And I introduced myself and she said, uh, with her eyes closed, um, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of threw me because I, I assumed that she hadn't seen me the night before. So I said to her, I thought you were asleep last night when I, when I came to see you. And she said, now she opened her eyes for the first time and said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. Well, that, that just didn't make any sense to me at all. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. The only way she could have done that is if she left, left her body and followed me down the hall. And that just didn't make any sense to me. As far as I could tell, I was my body. How can you leave it? So I kind of fumbled around with what to say, say next. And she perceived my, my confusion and, and then said to me, uh, she described about the conversation I had with her roommate, uh, the questions I asked, the roommate's answers, what we were wearing, where we were seating. Uh, and she made no mistakes at all. And I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't imagine how this had happened. Um, but I couldn't deal with her, my confusion, because I was there to deal with hers. My job was to help her. So I kind of had to stuff my feelings in the background for a while and, and talk with her about her thoughts about suicide and so forth. And it wasn't my best interview, I'll tell you that. Um, but I got through it. And I didn't dare tell anyone else about this experience. It was either uh, somebody was playing a trick on me and I was a, a gullible green intern for falling for this or else something that totally unexplicable, inexplicable happened. And I, I didn't want to admit either one. 
So I kind of stuffed it out of my mind for a while. I tried to. And it wasn't until about uh, five years later um, that Raymond Moody came to work at UVA, University of Virginia with me. And he had just written a book in 1975 called Life After Life, in which he gave us the name near-death experience and described what these experiences were like. And that was my first indication that what this one patient in the emergency room had told me about was not just one isolated account from a psychiatric patient, but it was something that millions of people around the world were talking about. It was a very common experience. And I still, as a scientist, I couldn't explain what was going on here. But I thought it was my responsibility to try to find out. If you're really a scientist, you don't ignore data. You you dive into it. Right. So I, I've now 50 years later, I'm still trying to understand it. I was going to say, so have we solved it yet? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so, no. Uh, I mean, I've, I've studied uh, thousands of cases now, and I've uh, been able to find uh, consistent patterns and the, the uh, features that hold up across religions, across cultures, across race, gender. And we've been able to do a lot of research on the possible physiological uh, correlates of these experiences. And I don't think we're any closer to understanding what causes them. We do know a lot, though, about uh, the circumstances under which they occur. And more importantly, for me as a psychiatrist, how they affect people's lives. Right. I mean, I have to say, just hearing that story, and I didn't know the detail behind it, I got instant goosebumps. And then I had this <laughs> overwhelming, I had this overwhelming sense of, and this sounds weird, like joy and contentment. Uh, and I was shocked by that emotion. And I mean, it was, it was powerful Yes, um, because I think we all want to believe in more. We, I think deep down, we really maybe even know there's more, but logically, and I would venture to guess most people listening to this don't fundamentally believe there's more. So my yeah. first question is, with all of your experience, specifically on this first patient, do you think it is an absolute fact that people, gosh, I don't know how to word this, can <laughs> see things, can experience after they die? I mean, is would you just come out and say, yes, I, there's no way around it. This example of this woman, that's proof enough, but I've seen it a hundred times. Well, I don't think that one experience with that one woman was proof of anything. Um, you know, I can't take one isolated case as proof, because I know how fallible our, our perceptions and our interpretations are. Hmm. Um, but as you pointed out, I've studied many, many of these experiences, and I've seen recurrent patterns, and I've done enough research trying to explain them away. You know, I went into this not with, with joy at an unknown thing, but with terror of it. You know, I lived in a materialistic world, and that was very comfortable for me. And this was very uncomfortable to think that somehow she had left her body. That, that, that was frightening. Um, so I, I did not want it to be true, and I desperately tried to find some alternative explanation. But I've seen and heard enough examples of people who claim to have left their bodies while they were unconscious or even pronounced dead, and then accurately described very surprising things that they couldn't have known about uh, that wow. I can't find any explanation for. Now, this is proof to me that Something about our, our minds, what, how, what we f use to think and to feel and to perceive can function when the brain does not seem to be functioning. Now, that implies that it may be able to happen after we die, but it doesn't prove it. Maybe, maybe you can leave your body and still think 
while the body's alive, that doesn't mean that you can still do it when the body is dead, but it opens, right. up the, it opens up the door to that possibility, certainly. That's a good point. And also, even I think more than that for me, it means that it can exist outside of your body entirely, which right. is right. probably the most confusing part of it all. And, it is. and this is what the interview is. is for. We're going to dig into this. Yeah. Well, you know, most of us assume, as I did, that the mind is what the brain does. That right. all our thoughts and feelings are created by the brain. And certainly that seems that way in everyday life. When you get drunk, you don't think very well. When you get hit on the head or have a stroke, that affects your thinking. So, of course, the brain is intimately involved in everything we think and see. And yet, in extreme circumstances like near-death experiences, and there are others, by the way, when the brain seems to be offline or at least severely impaired... Our thinking seems to be clearer than ever, our perceptions more vivid than ever, and we don't know how to explain that. Let me give you an example. One fellow I knew was a 55-year-old truck driver, had crushing chest pain, was rushed to the emergency room, and he had to have emergency quadruple bypass surgery. In that operation, he claimed to have left his body and looked down at the operation and saw his surgeon, as he described it, flapping his elbows as if he was trying to fly. Well, when he told me about this, I had been a doctor for about, for about 30 years at that point, and I had never seen or heard of anything so ridiculous. And you certainly don't see doctors on TV shows doing this sort of thing. Right. So I assumed he was hallucinating. But he insisted it was true, and with his permission, I talked to his surgeon. And to my great surprise, the surgeon corroborated everything the patient said. He said he developed this idiosyncratic habit. He'd never seen anyone else do it, where he lets his assistant start the procedure, and he gets on his sterile gown and gloves, and then walks into the operating room and doesn't want to risk touching anything that's not sterile. So he places his palms flat against his chest and then points things out to his assistants using his elbows so he won't <laughs> touch anything with his fingers. And he demonstrated to me this just like he was trying to fly. And there's no way the patient could have seen that. Now, not only was he unconscious, but his eyes were taped shut for the operation, and yet he saw it accurately. And I've got wow. dozens and dozens so, of cases just like this. I was going to say, so uh, the obvious question, which is staring us all in the face and why we're here is like, tell us what it means. But before we get there, let's go into the skeptical component. I sure. mean, it sounds like that's where you started. Good yeah, to know. Yeah. That's where everyone starts. Tell us how, because I've read your bio, but you're not a kook. Right. You have actually some really phenomenal, uh, you know, a background that's pretty phenomenal. And your CV is, is everything we would look for in somebody we want to trust from a, a logical expertise perspective. Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have had a mainstream um, medical medical career. I'm a doctor. I, I just, most of my time is spent treating patients and supervising medical students and residents. And this near-death research was kind of a, a sideline for me. Um and I'm still a skeptic, which means I want to doubt everything. But that includes everything I know. You know, if you're really going to be a skeptic, you don't doubt what other people believe. You also doubt what you believe. And you're constantly looking for evidence to back it up or to disprove it. So I went into this thinking there's got to be some rational explanation, a physical explanation for these experiences. And we looked. And, you know, many people have proposed physical explanations. For example, it's lack of oxygen uh, that causes these hallucinations. And that was appealing because no matter how you come close to death, you always end up getting poor oxygen going to the brain. 
So that made sense. So we tested that. And there have been several studies done in the U.S. and in the U.K. looking at oxygen levels of patients in their near-death situation. And we find that those who report near-death experiences actually have better oxygenation, more oxygen going to their brain than people who don't report NDEs. And it's similar with with drugs given to patients in a near-death state. The more drugs you're given, the less likely you are to report an NDE. So these things are not causing the near-death experience. In fact, they're stopping you from from having them. Uh, We've looked at uh, abnormal electrical charges in the brain. We've looked at where the different parts of the brain are associated with it. And we just have not found anything that will predict who's going to have a near-death experience in a close brush with death or what kind they're going to have. That doesn't mean we never will, right? but we haven't found it yet. One of the uh, reasons I think I've heard in the past, and I'll get the details wrong, has something to do with uh, a drug. What's the drug that we take, people take recreationally, but it's also produced, I think, at death and birth? Am I making this up? Yeah, you're talking about DMT? Yes. Dimethyltryptyline? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is a, a, um, a hallucinogenic drug. Um, and it is, um, as you said, uh, used for, for drug trips. Uh, it can produce uh, drug trips that sound very much like near-death experiences. It usually doesn't. Uh, most DMT trips um, are actually kind of terrifying, whereas most near-death experiences are calm, blissful experiences that are consistent from person to person. And drug trips are very idiosyncratic. No two people's drug trips are the same. Um, however, um, there are speculations that something like DMT, if not DMT itself, is produced in the brain at the point of death. We don't know that to be true, but there are speculations about that. Hmm. And certainly some animal models, uh, we've found that some animals do produce uh, some DMT um, as they're dying. So I was part of a multinational group recently that looked at uh, 700 near-death experience accounts from my collection and we compared them with someone else's collection of 15,000 uh, drug trips using a variety of hallucinogenic drugs. And we did a statistical analysis of how the people, these people reported their experiences. And what we found was that the drug that produced experiences most like a near-death experience was ketamine, which is an anesthetic. Uh, and the second most common was DMT. The third was salvia or sage. And what's interesting about this is that those three, three drugs work by very different mechanisms on the brain. They don't use the same neurotransmitters, so that doesn't give us clues as to what's going on in the brain. Hmm. Furthermore, if you ask people who have had near-death experiences and hallucinogenic drug trips, they say it's not the same thing. And they say that there are just so many words we have to describe our experiences so the fact that you use the same words doesn't mean it's the same experience. And these as right. an example, if you ask someone who's been in battle to describe what they saw and felt and heard while they were in combat, and then ask someone who was watching a war movie what they saw and felt and heard while they were watching it, they may use a lot of the same words, but nobody would confuse the two as being the same thing. Watching the movie is a poor mimic of the actual experience. Mm. And they say that's the way it is with the drug trips. It's not the same thing. And we know that, by and large, drug trips do not produce the same after effects that near-death experiences do, nor are they remembered forever the way NDEs are. How are they typically remembered? Great question. Uh, Because we would assume 
so at least psychiatrists would assume, that the memories would fade over time. Most of our memories, they do fade over the, over the years, and particularly memories that occur under traumatic circumstances or extremely emotional circumstances, which is true of most near-death experiences. So we would expect NDE memories to change over the years. Now, because I've been doing this research for about five decades now, I'm able to test that. And I've gone back to track down people I interviewed in the early 1980s and interviewed them again and compared what they tell me now with what they told me back then. And what we find is that they are identical. Nothing has changed over the years. Some uh, debunkers say, well, the situation, the memory gets more and more blissful the more you retell it. And we found that was not at all true. Hmm. They're identical to the way they were told uh, 40 years ago. Furthermore, uh, a scale has been developed uh, by a psychologist named Marsha Johnson to differentiate memories of real events from memories of fantasies, dreams, or imagination. And she developed this originally to study children who claim to have been abused. And this is to sort out real abuse from fantasies of abuse. So we gave this scale to near-death experiencers and asked them to rate their memory of the NDE and the memory of another major event in their life from about the same period of time and the memory of something they imagined, either a dream or something they thought was going to happen but didn't. And what we found was that the memory of the near-death experience was like the memory of the real event and not like the memory of the dreams. That, I should say that, that study that, that, that I did in Virginia was also repeated by a team in Belgium and a team in Italy, and they got the same results. And in fact, the team in Italy also measured brain waves while the people were remembering the experience. And they found that the brain waves of the people who recalled NDEs were like the brain waves of someone remembering a real event, not remembering a dream. This week's episode is brought to you by Stereo. Join us every Wednesday over on the Stereo app. After each episode, we're taking a deep dive of Smart People podcast over to Stereo so we can talk directly to you about the episode. Stereo is where people have started talking together again. You can be your very own talk host, or if listening's more your jam, jump on our Stereo talk and ask all of those questions you've been itching to ask. Download the Stereo app and follow us at Stereo.com slash SmartPeoplePod or check out the link in the description. We absolutely love Stereo. We're on the app talking all the time. Follow Chris and I and get notified every time we go live. Smart People Podcast can be found on Stereo at Stereo.com slash Smart People Pod. So again, join us every Wednesday over on the Stereo app. If you've ever had questions about the podcast or just anything in general and you've wanted to reach out to Chris and I, now's your chance. You can do so on Stereo. Download the Stereo app today and follow us at Stereo.com slash SmartPeoplePod. And now back to the episode. One thing now I'm wondering, is there a similarity amongst what is experienced? And if so, what is it, right? Because mm. if we say there are commonalities yes. uh, amongst people who kind of scientifically or medically die, but then come back, that wouldn't be surprising, right? Maybe the body goes through a, the same mm. brain process. I think it's the, my, my guess is it's the conscious experience, or I guess we can't call it that, but it's the memorable actual experience as it relates to, I saw this, I experienced this, I, I right. noticed things right. I shouldn't be able to. That would be right. the thing I'm assuming 
that is most interesting about this. Yeah. Well, there are commonalities that go across the centuries as well as across the globe. We have reports of near-death experiences from ancient Greece and Roman Egypt that sound like the ones we hear today. And we have reports from um, primitive cultures all over the world, uh, Polynesian cultures, um, ja- uh, French fur trappers collected stories of these from Indians in the, in the 1600s that sound just like the ones we have today. And we have today stories from Western civilizations, from uh, Muslim countries, from India, from China, from Japan, and they all seem basically the same. And the commonalities are first, a sense of overwhelming peace and well-being. And again, this is in the context of almost dying, which is usually a terrifying and painful experience, and you're suddenly overwhelmed by peace and well-being. You also have a sense often of leaving the physical body and sometimes looking down and seeing things around the body accurately. You also have a sense of departing from this physical environment and finding yourself in some other realm or dimension that seems to be suffused with light. And there's often what they call a being of light. It's not like a light bulb or the sun. They describe it as a living being that radiates warmth and love and protection and welcome. And this being will sometimes lead them through a review of their entire lives. And at some point, they may reach a point of no return beyond which they can't keep going and still come back. And they may make a decision then to come back to life, or sometimes they're told against their will, it's not your time, you need to go back. Hmm. And then they return to the body. And these things are consistent. Uh, I should say that, again, for me as a psychiatrist, what's more impressive is the consistent after effects. That's that what these, I was going to ask. That's exactly these, what I was going to ask. Good. Well, you're, in, you're on the right track, Chris. <laughs> Uh, these people usually come back first and foremost with saying that they are no longer afraid of death or of dying. And this is unusual because most people who almost die, whether they have an NDE or not, tend to value life much more because they've almost lost it. Hmm. But those who have a near-death experience say, I'm not afraid of dying anymore. And those who haven't had an NDE become much more cautious and much more conservative in their behavior because they are afraid of losing life. And near-death experiencers say, no, I'm not afraid of dying. It's, it was fine. Um, they also report that once you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living because you're not afraid of losing it. So you may tend to jump into life uh, and, and live it to the fullest, take some chances maybe, um, and, and get much more meaning and, and fulfillment out of your life. They also report that they are less concerned with things of this world, with material possessions, power, prestige, fame, competition. And they become much more concerned with what you might call spiritual things, our relationships, how you treat other people, with being compassionate. And we see them changing their behavior. They become much more altruistic. And they often end up changing their careers. Let me give you an example of that. One fellow I knew was kind of a schoolyard bully, Uh, His goal in life was always to become a Marine, and he eventually did that. And he found himself uh, as a sergeant in Vietnam leading his platoon, and he was shot in the chest, and he had shrapnel all over his lungs, and he was aerovacked to a hospital in the Philippines. And during his operation there, he had a blissful near-death experience. And when he came back, he was totally transformed, and he was kind of hesitant to go back into the field, and yet He was sent back after he rehabbed, and he found that when he got back into Vietnam, 
he couldn't shoot his gun. The idea of killing somebody else was mm. just so unthinkable to him, he couldn't fire his rifle. So he ended up leaving the Marines, coming back to the States, and retraining as a medical technician. And I've heard this again and again from people who had violent careers, for example, police officers, or people involved in organized crime who just gave up that career forever. I've heard it from people who were cutthroat businessmen who decided that getting ahead at someone else's expense is ludicrous, and they ended up not necessarily giving up business, but being much more compassionate in how they treated their employees and their customers. And I've seen uh, people having difficulty with this. It's, it's uprooting your whole life. Sometimes marriages break up because of this, or friendships break up. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's a powerful enough incentive to change that people are willing to uproot their lives for the sake of these new values. Huh. So, man, I have so many questions on this. Um, let's start with this one in the next, and as we move forward, how do we define an NDE? And, and I guess even more than that, how do we define somebody died so they are uh, able to have an NDE instead of right. just, a, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. It's, it's a very tricky question because our definition of death changes over the years. You know, it used to be when you stopped breathing or stopped having a heartbeat, you were considered dead. But, you know, many people came back from that state and it became questionable whether that is really a good definition. So we tended to use now a brain definition. When your brain waves go flat, you're considered dead. And of course, in practical terms, most people don't have their brain waves measured. They, they're just obviously dead, so we call them dead. Um, but if you need a legal definition for somebody, you have to do brainwave measures and see that their their brains are, are totally so-called flatlining, not showing any activity at all. But of course, now we have people coming back from that state as well. Um, and there's an increased appreciation that death is not a point in time. You're not alive and then dead. But it ha it's a gradual process. Uh, Sam Parnia at NYU University has done a lot of work with trying to sort out the process of dying. And it takes hours, if not days, even for the brain to die, that the brain cells die at different rates. And it's a long process, and it's hard to tell when someone has crossed the line from life to death because it happens so gradually. Wow. So we don't really know when someone is is dead. Um, you know, you can say when someone has rigor mortis, they're not coming back. Um, but that, that takes quite a while. And right. certainly people are, for all practical purposes, dead before that. Now, I should say that it's complicated with NDEs, with near-death experiences, because people report the same kinds of experiences when they're not physiologically dead. For example, people who fall when they're climbing mountains and they may have a vivid near-death experience as they're falling, and yet, as far as anyone can tell, their hearts didn't stop, their breathing didn't stop. Were they close to death? Well, they sure thought they were. And we have people who were in car accidents who had near-death experiences even though they weren't physiologically near death. And yet they have the same type of experience as people whose hearts have stopped and had to be resuscitated. So it's, it's not clear uh, what the, how tight the connection is between death and a near-death experience. It seems that coming close to death or being pronounced dead is maybe the most reliable way of having a near-death experience, but it's not the only way. Do you, or does the science at all, differentiate between what I would consider an after-death experience and a near-death experience? 
Uh, what do you mean by an after-death experience? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I'm imagining a, a scenario in which the heart stops beating, uh, they stop breathing, their brain waves are measured, and there are none, and then they come back and report an experience. I would consider right. that you died, <laughs> right? And then yeah. you came back. And I know I'm using very layman's terms here, right, but I think right. that's how many people would define it. Is there a differentiation of that in the science? Um, not really. Uh, we, we don't see that the, the experiences of those people are any different from the experiences of people who haven't come quite as close to death, haven't seemed to cross that line. Um, and that that's kind of puzzling because that makes it harder to look at what's going on physiologically if there's such a great difference between one person and the next. I'm wondering, from your perspective, what is the greatest piece of evidence we have that this is real and is something that, uh, because when I, when I say real, I don't just mean an experience. Like, if it is all true and all this, it, it could shake all, all, our fundamental beliefs about humanity existence to the core. So in your experience, what's the biggest piece of evidence that this does happen and it shows that there is something we're not accounting for? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's lots and lots of, of pieces you know, many people who come back from a near-death experience tell all sorts of stories about what happened to them in the other realm. And those accounts are not something we can study scientifically because we don't know from independent right. observations what's going on over there, you know. And yet many of them report things about this realm, this world, that they shouldn't be able to know, and yet they did. And I give you one example of a fellow who saw his, his, his search and flapping his arms. I've got many examples of that people who left their bodies or claim to and saw things from an out-of-body perspective. Sometimes they see things that aren't in the same room that they've gone to, you know. So one, one person, one woman I knew, um, during an operation she had, uh, she claimed to have left her body and went down to the waiting room where she saw her mother smoking a cigarette. And this was surprising to her because her mother was not a smoker. Wow. And yeah, she told me about this, and later on, I, I confronted the mother, and the mother said, well, I'm not a smoker, but I was so anxious about my daughter's condition that I borrowed a cigarette from someone else in the waiting room just to see if it would help me calm down. Hmm. And there's no way that the patient could have known that. Again, she was unconscious at the time, being operated on, and I've got story after story after story about this. Yeah, now, and, and I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that, because from my limited perspective, that would be the thing, or that is the thing that makes me go... I think there's something here, right? Because to your point, when they come back and explain from another realm, there is a potential. I'm not saying it's high or real, but that they read that somewhere and now everybody sure, just sure. perpetuates on story. But sure. the one about calling out things that we, there's fundamentally no way they should know, that seems yep. pretty yep. interesting. Well, one of the common objections to this is that um, what happens in an death experience is what we expect to happen. So it's all imagination. And in fact, that's not true at all that many people report that what they experienced was not at all like what their religion told them was going to happen when they die. Now, most people now know basically what the outline of a near-death experience is. They've, we've heard about it so much. Um, even Bart Simpson's had a near-death experience. Um, <laughs> so we, we looked at people whose stories we collected before Raymond Moody published his book in 1975, when people didn't know about near-death experiences. And we compared what they told us with people that are reporting them now. And what we find is that there's absolutely no difference. That what people told us 
before they knew what an NDE was like. It's the same as what they report now. Now, there's one other phenomenon they sometimes report that is even more inexplicable to me than, than seeing things outside of your body. You know, seeing things outside of your body may, may argue that the brain does not create all our thoughts, that there is a mind that can somehow separate from the brain, I have no idea how, but can function when the brain is not functioning. That kind of implies that the brain doesn't create all our thoughts, something else does. And that's, by the way, not a new idea. Hippocrates wrote about that 2,000 years ago. He said, the brain is the messenger or the interpreter of the mind. And people have talked about that over the centuries. But that doesn't show that the mind continues after death. It just shows that during death, during life, it can operate separately from the brain. But many people in a near-death experience report seeing deceased loved ones. And we can dismiss those as being imagination and wishful thinking. You know, you thought you were dying, so of course you imagine being reunited with loved ones. Mm -hmm. But occasionally people report seeing someone who had died that no one knew had died yet. Whoa. We have cases of this. Actually, Pliny the Elder wrote about one in the first century AD about a very dramatic case uh, that was well documented at the time of a Roman nobleman who had this experience. But let me tell you one that, that I investigated personally. This is a fellow, when he was 25 years old, he was admitted to hospital with severe pneumonia. He was a technical writer. And he was having repeated respiratory arrests where he would not be able to get his breath. And this was back in the 70s when our technology wasn't quite as good. So he was um, in an oxygen tent and he was having a lot of trouble. And he had one nurse who was particularly uh, fond of working with him, who was about his age, and they got pretty close over the, over the days. And at one point, she told him she was going to be taking the long weekend off. So he you know, wished her well and said goodbye to her. And while she was gone, like the next day, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that time, he had a near-death experience. And he found himself in a pastoral scene. He was very at peace. And to his surprise, he saw this nurse, Anita, coming towards him. So he, you know, he's shocked. He said, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, basically, this is where I am now. And you can't stay here. You have to go back. But I want you to tell my parents that I love them very much. And I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. No, and then she turned on. around and walked away. Well, he woke up back in his hospital bed with a complete vivid memory of this experience. And he told the first nurse who walked into his room about it. And she started tearing up and quickly left the room. And it turned out that the reason this nurse had taken the weekend off was that it was her 21st birthday. And her parents had surprised her with a red MGB for her birthday. Come on. She was so excited. She jumped in it, took off down a hill, lost control of the car, and smashed into a telephone pole, dying instantly. Now, there's no way this patient could have known or expected that she had died, and certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did. And I've got dozens of cases like this in my files of people who reported seeing people who were dead, but nobody knew at the time they were dead. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. At Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to business, motivation, and more. There's tons of original entertainment from top celebrity creators and thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts. 
As an Audible member, you get one credit every month good for any title in the entire premium selection. That means the latest bestseller, the buzziest new release, the hottest celebrity memoir, or that bucket list title you've been meaning to pick up. And these titles are yours to keep forever in your Audible library. You also get full access to the popular Plus catalog. It's filled with thousands and thousands of audiobooks, original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and podcasts. And all of these are included with your membership, so you can download and stream all you want, no credits needed. Simply put, Audible is your playlist for life. The new Plus catalog makes Audible memberships so much more valuable and gives all members a chance to listen to and discover new favorites and new formats, like the exclusive Words Plus Music series, or a podcast you never considered before. New members can always try Audible for 30 days for free. Just visit audible.com smart or text SMART to 500-500. Again, visit audible.com SMART or text SMART to 500-500. And now back to the episode. You know, one of the things here, and we could talk about it if we have time, is at this point we, and I, I know that some people say this about NDs, it's like, well, scientifically they're not proven, and, and they use that as some reason. I, I don't find that useful, right, at this, <laughs> at this point in the discussion. Uh, we can all make up our own decisions. That sounds pretty fascinating to me, and it's something I want to believe, so I'm going to go ahead and believe it. What, what I did want to discuss is when we talked about defining death, and especially at the brainwave portion of it. Right, right. I, I find that to be perhaps one of the most fascinating, because to your point, it means the brain is not the end-all, be-all. And I think we're right. learning that every day, especially with people talking about, well, it's the gut and this, but right. now it's saying like, well, it's not even the body. Like imagine it's, you know, there's an experience and then your body is just the method in which we interpret that experience, but it's outside of us type thing. Like yeah, yeah. so many potentials and, and rationale for this that just open you up when you say, well, it's clearly not just the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Or the brain, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me say that when I started telling you about that story about uh, the fellow who saw his nurse, Anita, and she told him that she had wrecked the red MGB, you said, come on. And that's, that's my response too. When I hate these things, I think this is, this is too much. I can't believe this, but it's there and we can corroborate it. And, you know, you can't just deny things you don't want to believe. Right. So now this this idea about about the mind being not the brain, um, there's a theory about the connection between mind and brain that suggests that the mind has access to all these areas of consciousness that include things like in near-death experiences, but the brain acts as a receiver and a filter of these thoughts and filters out those thoughts that aren't relevant to survival. The brain being a physical organ evolved over the centuries, over the millennia, to help us survive in the physical world. And to do that, you need to know how to find food and shelter and a mate and so forth. You don't need to know about deceased ancestors, whether they're still alive or not. You don't need to know about a deity if there is one. So the brain filters those out as being irrelevant and just lets in those thoughts about the physical world. Much the way a cell phone filters out all the frequencies that are out there that you don't want to listen to it right now and just lets in one phone call at a time so you don't listen to a million phone calls at the same time. This should not be surprising because 
all our organs evolved to filter out irrelevant stimuli. Exactly. Your, your eyes don't see everything in the in the electromagnetic spectrum. It just filters out those that we don't want to see, don't need to see, and lets in a small wavelength. Our ears don't hear all the frequencies. We don't hear what dogs do. We just hear those frequencies that are important to our survival. So if there is a brain, a mind out there, it made sense that the brain would filter out those th- thoughts and perceptions that aren't relevant to physical survival. So it makes sense in terms of evolution that it would happen that way. But that raises the question about what is the mind? Where is it? And how does it relate to the brain? And I don't have explanations for that. Right. We just can't uh, know that. On the, on the other hand, Chris, the alternative that the brain creates the mind is just as hard to explain because we have not the slightest idea how an electrical or chemical process in the brain can create a thought. People have been struggling this for hundreds of years, and we have not the slightest idea how that could happen. So we don't know how you can have consciousness either with the brain or without the brain. It, we just don't know anything about it. I've never thought about the flip side like that. You're right. You know, I think I just take for granted, well, the brain is so complicated, so complex, so many neurons and synapses and things firing that, of course, they can da-da-da-da, but right. flip around and say, no, 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 it is an electrical machine because, for whatever reason, somebody smarter than me knows, but it, it could serve just as much like a satellite as it could to a, you know, an, an, a machine that has output as well. Right, right. That's I mean, crazy. an example is cars that are produced in the, these days have so much, quote, intelligence, they can perceive so much and interpret so much so that they don't crash into other things. It doesn't need to be conscious. We don't think cars are conscious. So why should we, as physical animals, have consciousness? We could survive with just the mechanical perceiving things and responding to them. What's consciousness got to do with it? Why do we have it? And there's no known way that the brain can produce consciousness. Now, again, that doesn't mean we never will find the answer. It's just that we've been struggling it for hundreds of years and and have the slightest idea about how to go about finding it. How do you deal with the fact that not everybody who reaches a certain state and comes back experiences a near-death experience? Oh, that's a good one, Chris. Uh, Several studies in different countries, in the U.S., in Germany, and U.K., have shown that when people have a documented cardiac arrest when their hearts stop— about 10 to 20% will report a near-death experience. The vast majority will not. And we've looked and looked and tried to find what differentiates those who do and those who don't have a near-death experience. And we have not found anything. Given the same physiological circumstances, a small number will have an NDE, but most will not. I don't know how to explain that. You know, the thing that keeps striking me is you said you've been doing this for 50 years I can't imagine a world in which we know the answer to this. I mean, I'm sure it will happen. Well, not sure, but I assume it will happen based off another thousand years of research. But like, yeah, how yeah. do you dedicate your life to it and keep going with the understanding that we haven't really come that far? Or maybe yeah. we have. Well, uh, this is one of the ways in which this research has changed me. Uh, you don't do this stuff for so many years talk to so many people who've had these amazing experiences and not feel changed yourself. When I went into this field, when I, when I started out as a, a young medical student, I was convinced that science was the way to understand everything in the, in the universe. 
I still think it's the best way we have to, to understand a lot of things, but it doesn't give us all the answers. I started out thinking science will give us all the answers to everything. And now I'm realizing that there are some answers we just can't come up with. There's some questions we can't answer. Uh, and I'm comfortable with that now. I wouldn't have been 40 years ago, but I've become comfortable with the unknown and not knowing all the answers. And that's fine with me. So then why keep researching? Oh, I'm curious. You know, at heart, uh, by temperament, as well as training, I'm a scientist, I'm a skeptic. You know, I look at all this evidence I've compiled, and part of me is thinking, are you misinterpreting this? Is something you're not seeing right? And I'm constantly questioning, am I right in what I'm thinking about these? Is there some alternative that could possibly explain it? And that's part of the fun of science for me, is constantly questioning not only what other people are doing, but what you are doing yourself, what you are believing, and wondering if you've got it wrong, and is there another way of looking at it? You mentioned it changing you, and I, and I yes. imagine it has to. Yes. What are some examples of that, either in the way you behave, the, the way you focus on certain things? I mean, I know it's a, a bit of a personal question, so take it how you'd like, but I'm curious. Well, you know, most near-death experiences, I said, become much more compassionate and much more uh, altruistic. And, you know, I think I started out life kind of that way. I was, my family, even though they were diehard materialists, they were very compassionate and altruistic people. And I kind of got that from them. Um, but I think at, at a, a deeper inner level, um, I feel much more compassionate towards people now than I, than I did once before. Mm. I, I like to think that I always acted in that way, but it's, it's harder for me to maintain anger at people now because I tend to be, uh, you know, it, it sounds trite, but you tend to see the divinity in everybody uh, when you've worked with this stuff for so long. Sure. That we're all, you know, near-death experiences often say that in this other realm, it was like you are a wave in the ocean, that you are your distinct entity, you're the wave, but you're part of the same material that the whole ocean is, is a part of. And they say that we are all part of that divinity, even though we're a separate part of it. Uh, they often use the example of, of people being uh, fingers on a hand. If you look at the fingers, they're distinct entities. But if you look at the whole hand, you can see they're really interconnected. They're made of the same stuff. And they say that we are all interconnected and we are all part of the divine. Let me give you an example of the interconnectedness. I mentioned before that many people have their life review in a near-death experience where they see their entire life before their eyes. Well, in a lot of these people, they see things not only from their own perspective, but through the eyes of other people. Let me give you an example of this. A young man named Tom Sawyer, that's his real name, <laughs> um, uh, he had a near-death experience in his 30s when he was working under a truck, and it slipped and came down and, and crushed his chest. And he reviewed his entire life in a matter of seconds. And he said it was in such great detail. I could count the mosquitoes buzzing around me in this event. You know, I, I couldn't have started at the time, but in my re review, I could. And he remembered one particular incident when he was 17, uh, you know, hot-headed teenager driving down the street in his truck. And a drunk man wandered into the road in front of his truck, and he almost hit him. Well, he was furious, mm. mostly because he was raiding my dentist's truck. So he, he stopped his truck, rolled down the window, and started swearing at the man. And the man, unfortunately being drunk, reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. Well, that was too much for Tom. So he got out of the truck and started pounding the man mercilessly with his fists. 
and left him a bloody heap on the median strip, got back in his truck and just drove off. Well, in his life review, he says he experienced that not only through his own eyes, but through the eyes of the drunk man. Wow. And he could watch his face, Tom's face, getting redder and redder, and then felt each one of the 32 blows on this man's face. He felt his nose getting bloodier and his teeth going through his lower lip and the humiliation of being beaten up by a teenager. And he said, I realize that what I'm doing to this guy, I'm doing to myself, that we're all the same thing. We're all this together. And most people come back from a near-death experience with basically the golden rule, which is a part of what every religion on earth teaches us, that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But they come back from an NDE thinking, this is not just a guideline we're supposed to follow. This is a law of the universe, like gravity. This is just the way it is, that when you hurt someone else, you're hurting yourself as well. And that changes the way they they treat other people, the way they think of other people. Let me ask you from your perspective, since I know we don't have too much time left and I want to talk about your book here, um, what do you think is going on? Like, I know we can't answer it, but you're the closest I'm going to get to somebody who can. What do you, how do you explain it? Well, I think the explanation that fits most of the data best is that there is some non-physical part of us. You can call it the mind. You can call it the spirit. You can call it the soul. You know, all those words have extra baggage and I don't know what it is, but there's something about us that thinks and feels and perceives that can function outside the physical body. And the data seem to suggest that it can continue to function after the body dies. I can't explain how that is or what it is. And I'm free to admit that I could be misinterpreting this and I could be wrong. But the way I see the data, that seems to be the most consistent explanation. Um, So that's what I would guess what's happening. Now, do I expect to live after I die? I don't know. I, I kind of expect I will. But, you know, people who report a near-death experience, when I ask them to describe it, they say, I can't, that there aren't any words to describe what happened in a near-death experience. But being a researcher, I say, great, tell me about it. And of course, they can't. So I'm making them distort the experience by putting it into English, which means using whatever metaphors they have. Right. So they are describing it in metaphoric terms, not literal terms. So like many of them will say, this warm, loving being of light was God or was Christ. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, now, I don't mean the God I was taught about in church. This is much bigger than that. But I'm using the word God, so you know what I'm talking about. So I don't take anything they say about an afterlife as being a literal description. It's at best a metaphor of how they felt in that other world. So I, I'm convinced that if I do survive death, I can't imagine at this point what it will be like, that it It'll be so far beyond anything I can think of now. I mean, that's why I said when you first mentioned it, it almost was, I don't know, it just felt good because (laughs) I don't think we want an end. One of the things, though, is why don't we have so many tales of before life experiences? Um, That's a good question. Uh, I mean, like, let's assume, and again, we're getting into stuff. I don't answer. I'm just spitballing with you here, but like, Let's say you're a, a eight month old fetus or mm-hmm. you know, 37 weeks. I mean, you're basically a human type at that point, depending on your beliefs, but why not have this ability in the womb to remember, you know, it just seems odd. Right. Right. 
Well, there are people who study that, oh. and there are people who study very young children, two, three, four years old, who seem to be talking about a past life. Hmm. And in some cases, they claim to have been able to corroborate some of the details that the child is talking about of a, of a very different life. Uh, I personally have not studied that, so I can't really talk about it sure. uh, intelligently. But um, you know, I, I don't think we've studied it to the extent that we're studying near-death experiences because we, we have them. Uh, we have right. so many of them available to us. There are millions of people now who have had near-death experiences and are willing to talk about it. Well, this is fascinating stuff, Bruce. I really appreciate <laughs> you kind of talking about it. And even more so, going into more detail and giving more in your book. So the book is called After... A doctor explores what near-death experience reveal about life and beyond. Tell us a little bit about that book and what you set out to accomplish in it. Mm. Well, I've been thinking about writing a book for, uh, for a lot of, lot of years. Uh, I never had before this. I've always written articles in medical journals, which, of course, had to be very cautiously worded. And I just present the data and, and a conservative interpretation. But I've never been able to really let loose and say what I really think in these journals. I don't have evidence for what I really think. Right. But I think, you know, at this point, you know, I've been doing this for so many years. I think now we finally have enough scientific sophistication and enough data from the experiences that I can put together a coherent picture of what the experience really means. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book for the general public rather than for scientists is that there is a lot of evidence that you don't need to have a near-death experience to have this change attitudes towards life. That people who are taught a course in near-death experiences have some of the same after effects. And this has been repeated with, I think there have been four studies of college students who take a course in near-death experiences. There's been a study of nursing students and even one study of a high school class that showed changes in their altruistic behavior after learning about near-death experiences for up to a year after the course is over. So I think that learning about NDEs can change our mindset about what life is all about and what makes a life more meaningful and more fulfilling. And I thought that in writing this book for the general public, I could help educate people about what is going on with near-death experiences and what they imply about what life is all about and what death is all about and maybe help other people think about what am I doing with my life? Is this the way I want to lead it or should I be just doing something different with my life? I'm not yeah. giving answers. I'm just hoping I can raise some questions in people's minds, making them think about what's going on. I don't have the answers, but I sure have a lot of good questions. I was going to say, you know, for me at least, that's okay. I, I, I mean, I would be... I would not want to talk to you if you said you had the answers because <laughs> that would be even crazier than yeah. not having them. But to your point, just the discussion of they happen, yeah. uh, here's what they feel like, here's what they look like, given thousands, millions of, of um, people who have answered it. And so whether you believe it or not, take that and think on it and think about if it is true, how does that impact your you know, consciousness, right, your right, right. live consciousness. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've included in the book uh, many, many uh, firsthand accounts of this experience to, to bring it alive, to let people know really what I'm talking about. Um, and some of the more dramatic cases that I've, that I've come across, I've included in the book. But I also include a lot of the hardcore research that I've done to try to back up what is and isn't happening with these NDEs. Um, and I've also included in it 
how my thinking about things have changed um, over the years to kind of show that that this does change people and it changes how you go about doing the research and how you go about leading your lives. It's fascinating stuff. Well, Bruce, again, thank you. The book is After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experience Reveal About Life and Beyond. Where else, you know, where else can our people either find you or is there more to, to learn that, that you would recommend? Uh, sure. Um, I, have a, I have a website, um, www.brucegrayson.com, and there's Grayson with an E, G-R-E-Y-S-O-N. Um, there's also uh, an excellent resource, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Uh, that's www.iands.org. And there's a, a, a Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, that's nderf.org. And they all have excellent resources. Um, uh, many of them have accounts on their websites, and they certainly have um, written material that they can send or they can download from their websites. Uh, so they're all sources of, of excellent information about near-death experiences and related phenomena. Well, Bruce, I think you just gave me something to ponder for at least the rest, of, <laughs> if not the rest of eternity. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for coming on, talking with us about it. And, um, you know, congrats on the new right. book. Uh, looking forward to having people pick it up and, and telling us what they think. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris. I've enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Bruce Grayson. His book, After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond, can be found wherever books are sold. Let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're in the giving mood and you feel like donating to the show, head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and sign up to be a patron and select one of the tiers that are available where you'll also get some nice perks from us. And lastly, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode. Don't miss our Smart People podcast chats over on the Stereo app. We'll be going live every Wednesday and whatever day. Just follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod and we want to hear from you. Our first Stereo show was amazing and we had so much fun and every show since then has been an absolute blast. Stereo is the app for live social conversations, and we want to talk directly with you, our listeners. You can join our show, ask questions about the podcast, and share your experience and opinions. We want to hear everything. Download the Stereo app now and join us live this week. The link to the Stereo app is in our show description. Music.